Hi, it's Leah. Today I'm speaking to Shreya Navadia. Shreya has spent the majority of her life in pursuit of creating meaningful communities. These days, she does so at OnDeck. In our conversation, we discuss the difficulty in measuring success when it comes to human interaction, the role of groups in unlocking potential, the future of scouting for hidden talent, and much more. Without further ado, here's our chat. So, Shreya, thanks so much for being here today. To start off, I'd be curious, what kind of problem did you see around you when you first decided to do the work you're currently doing? And more broadly, uh, what do you hope to accomplish throughout your career? Yeah, awesome question to start. So I think that I can give the naive answer and say that I'm an only child. And so I was always craving community and trying to find people like me. But I think that the deeper reason that I'm really motivated to create communities in the technology industry is because since I was in about middle school, I saw that people started to not believe in themselves anymore. They didn't really think that they could make a huge impact on the world. They didn't think they could achieve their dreams. And it was very sad to me to watch 12-year-olds give up on life. And I think that maybe makes it sound a little more dramatic than it is, but you can see some childlike wonder in them die. And once I got privy to like the startup world, the tech community, mostly in college, I started to realize that bringing together a lot of inspired people to create new businesses and products in the world would be a fantastic way to help people build that confidence and find that network of others where they could build and grow and learn together. So it's been a huge transformation in my own confidence in myself to start to meet other tech community builders and to bring these people together and see what they could create with each other. What do you think, if you have any theories, is kind of a reason why you see that innate curiosity, which I have in my own life also witnessed in a lot of young people, what makes that kind of fade away? What makes that die at such an early age oftentimes? Yeah, I think a lot of it is a combination of parents and teachers. I don't think that the other peers are really doing it. I think that I went to, I grew up in a small town. I went to a kind of very normal public school. And I think that a lot of the adults that children that age interact with are not very happy themselves, and they give them pretty bad advice. And then the children might think, it's like a teacher who thinks they're maybe helping someone by saying, oh, math isn't for you. But they're not helping them at all. Like They're really giving that kid a complex of, I can't do this. Now I have to force myself to do it for six more years and I'm going to be terrible all the time. Small things like that add up and have a huge impact. I, I don't want to blame an amorphous group of adults too much, but it's more that there isn't a good counterbalance lifting people up. Like you're already starting to go through puberty. You're already feeling very insecure about yourself, trying to find your place in the world. Say, who am I? Figure out if other people like you, if they want to be friends with you, if they want to date you. It's a very insecurity inducing time. And yet I don't think that there's enough forces in our school systems or in like the TV and media that kids are consuming that's saying, you're awesome, go for it. I remember when I was that age myself, a lot of times that there would be a supposedly inspiring character or person in a magazine or a book, it was much less, you could be this too, and much more, look at how great this 12-year-old is. Like, haha, like you didn't climb Kilimanjaro with your dad. Like this girl's the youngest ever to climb Kilimanjaro with her dad. And I was like, well, how the hell do I do that? And even the, the myths that we tell ourselves and we tell children, Harry Potter wasn't a normal person who worked very hard or realized he could be something great. 
he was like chosen. We have this chosen one myth instead of having this, you can make yourself the chosen one myth. And I really, I feel like if I had discovered Hollywood instead of tech, I would still want to do that same thing. I would want to write stories and create movies that were telling people like, you can create it. You don't have to be chosen. Yeah, something that I have found so uh, empowering about the tech industry is very much like that focus on, hey, you can just work hard and meet people and create your own luck in a sense. Uh, it's much less about the having had to be chosen into a certain thing. On the community side, I'm very curious to hear you talk more about what it takes to build a great community of people from scratch. People are super complicated. Everyone wants different things. So what is the most challenging aspect to you? I think that it's funny because I think many people both overcomplicate and underestimate community building. Overcomplicate in the sense that in non-COVID times, I think people spend a lot of time worrying about bells and whistles. They're like, we need free food. We need a cool venue. We need a celebrity speaker. And they're forgetting that the core of a group of people is the people. And it's really just about who are the people? Why are, there, why are they there? How will they interact with each other? And how will you ensure that this exceeds what they expect it to be? Uh, one, I'm, I'm going to quote Eric Torenberg because he's the founder of On Deck where I work, mentor and someone I listen to a lot. He says that communities need value and values. And so value is what do people get out of it? What's the transformation? What's the learning? What's the thing that they all create? And then values is what are the shared values between the people there? Why are they chosen to be together? And what makes this really into a, a network of people in a group instead of just like a, a bunch of people standing in a room or sitting in a Slack community? But then the flip side of, of underestimate is I think people are not really willing to do the work. I met hundreds and hundreds of people on one-on-ones over a few years. It took about five years of those hundreds of one-on-ones to see much of an impact in that network. And I think the reason I kept going is because I saw little indicators that it was working or suddenly I could introduce people to each other and it would be useful instead of just being like, wish I could help you. Great to meet you. Bye. And, and now I can have like very productive 15 minute calls with any like young tech people or people in spaces that I know about. I think the biggest mistakes that I see is People who are good at marketing, thinking that means they're good at community building, they'll dump a lot of people onto an email list, get a lot of Twitter followers or a lot of Instagram followers, and then they go, hey, we put you in Slack, now you're a community. Or like, we're doing this like Zoom event, now you're a community. That's not enough. Are, are those people helping each other? Are they talking to each other? Are they interacting with each other? Do they know why they're there? Are they coming back? Just, it's not even a numbers game. I used to run the Violet Society and the first group that I started with was 13 people. And I think that you don't have to have a huge group. You don't have to have a famous group. You don't have to have a cool group in order for it to really help people and change their lives. And I'm curious, in the beginning or throughout the first five years, what was the feedback you got where you were thinking, oh, like this is working? What were points that made you believe that you were onto something? One of the first things that I did was I was an early member in this Facebook group, Lady Storm Hackathons. It was basically the group for women that branched off from a very popular Facebook group called Hackathon Hackers, all with this goal of getting more college students into hackathons, excited about hackathons, and even hosting their own. This was like an amazing way for me to meet other people in the tech and startup community and world that I was not exposed to in college because where I went, Tufts was not very connected to the startup world. And what I did in that group, Lady Storm Hackathons, was at first I just asked all the questions I had. And then I started 
looking at other people's questions and just Googling for their answers. And I found out that over time, I made myself the expert because I started knowing about more interview prep resources than almost anyone else. I started knowing all different founders, investors, leaders, people popular on Twitter, bloggers, and just built up that knowledge myself so that I could be helpful because I didn't want to just ask for things. I wanted to keep giving things back because it also increased the chance that people would answer my questions. It became this virtuous cycle where we were all helping each other. And the more I put in, the more I got out. I I, I don't want to, yeah, it's definitely not like a, a tit for tat thing. It's definitely not, I give so I can take. And I think that there's a big difference between giving without expecting, but knowing that you're helping people and that things are coming back to you and giving while expecting things to come back to you. It's like by, by being generous, you know that it'll just help more people and create positive things in your life, which is very different than like, I'm just going to be generous so that people help me back. Yeah, the quote from Tim O'Reilly actually comes to mind, which is create more value than you capture. And I think that fits very well with that. It's just a generally good attitude to have. Concerning communities and measuring success, it seems a very hard thing to, to measure success quantitatively. And you've alluded to it already, as in you cannot really measure it through numbers, right? Whoever is on your email newsletter, like those numbers will not tell you about what actual human connections are doing to the community. I wonder what your thoughts are in, in that area. How do you then tell whether it's working or not? Yeah, I think the act of bringing humans together is going to be inherently very messy. I don't think that there's a perfect metric. I don't think this can be drilled down into one dimension. The thing that we're using at OnDeck and the thing I used at Violet before this was just net promoter score. Some I think now that people have know about net promoter score for years, maybe it's a little bit less accurate all the time. But basically, really just trying to get at, are you obsessed with this? And do you love it? Are you going to advocate? Are you going to refer people? Do you just like it? Are we okay? Are we something good in your life, but not something great? Or do you think that this wasn't good, that this was a waste of time, waste of money, not what you expected, not what you hoped for? My favorite thing is turning the detractors into promoters, because it is entirely possible. A lot of times there's people who potentially can't parse through our resources or don't know what to do with this group of people or don't think that we have something that we actually have and they didn't know about. And then they're, they're, they totally change their tune over time. Some of those people are, can become your biggest advocates when they start off as the biggest attractors. I remember that it was a trend for a while for a lot of students like applying to internships and creating communities to say, built 5,000 person community, built 10,000 person community. And I'm hoping that there's less of that now because Because like you said, the size of it does not have any bearing on its impact or its value for any of the members within it. So I really like using NPS as our North Star. And then corroborating that NPS is just, it's lots of talking to people. There's no way around doing lots of one-on-one -on -one conversations. I had a one-on-one -on -one with everyone in Violet, and I tried to have a one-on-one -on -one with at least a, a third of a group in On Deck now and talk to every single person over DM. It's really, you, you can't do shortcuts. That's going back to the underestimating what it takes. There's no shortcuts. At the end of the day, there's only so much you can reduce to numbers and people and connections certainly seem like a very hard one to, to pin down in that way. In designing programs and in fostering networks, do you draw inspiration from first principles of what makes us tick? Do you design programs that are influenced by behavioral insights from other fields? And if so, what are they? 
I think this question is really interesting because I wish I had a more intellectual answer. <laughs> but honestly, I feel like no psychological or sociological theory could teach me as much as just paying attention a lot. I, If we go back to that kind of pivotal middle school time, another thing I remember myself doing was I knew that I wanted to be a leader and I wanted to be charismatic, but I was not really yet. Like people didn't listen to me. They didn't follow me. I couldn't really influence them. Not as much as I wanted to, at least. And so... I remember, I distinctly remember when I would be at parties or in groups and someone would be very funny or get a lot of attention. I was like studying them. I was studying them like there was going to be an exam and someone was going to say pop quiz, tell a funny story, Shria, and make at least five people in the circle of eight laugh. And that's really, I think, one of the things that's helped me a lot now. I kept my eyes open at parties, schools, clubs, and looked at the dynamics between people, what made them feel good and what made them feel bad. You can figure out how to become a better host and a better gatherer by paying attention to teachers and people who host parties and figuring out, are they making people feel more comfortable and welcome and understood and seen or less? Did they just say something that upset someone? How do I prevent that? How do I create a space where it's so discouraged for other people to do that to each other that I've almost pre-controlled the situation and I've stopped people from saying something that'll shut down that openness and that warm feeling between people? That reminds me of uh, Cialdini's influence, if you've ever read that. It was basically a psychologist who immersed himself in the real world to find out how to persuade people. And that itself, I feel like, is telling and in support of your thesis that you can only learn it in the real world by actually interacting. Yeah, I definitely don't think that no intellectually fancy answer is, is a bad thing. I think like you probably learned a lot more through through actually just paying attention. What are the lessons about human nature then that you've learned through your work in building communities and in providing mentorship to others as well? Totally. I think I think one that builds on something I mentioned in, in the answer before this is humans love mimicking each other. It's like the monkey see, monkey do. And you can use that to your advantage when you're the host or the leader to set guidelines of an environment without saying it. I've been to many spaces or like conferences where someone will say a value and then everyone's forgotten the value the second they slip flips the next slide. But if you infuse the value into what you're doing and what how people are interacting and speaking to each other, then you don't even have to say it. Everyone just starts to mimic it. And I think that's why it's important to realize that it's pretty fragile. If you want to instill this feeling of generosity, you can't have one bad actor in a group of 100 people because they're going to start to kind of spread that negativity one by one and slowly by slowly. And it'll it'll eat away at the community from the inside. It's really important to be thoughtful about creating this vulnerable environment, safe environment where people think that they can be themselves authentic. Another thing kind of building on that that I would say is remembering that we all want to be seen and heard and loved, even in situations where that feels a little too mushy. Whenever I hear someone say, I hate networking, and if they're in startups in particular, I'm like, you're clearly doing it wrong. If you bring a little bit of that love and care to every call or meeting that you have with someone, then you'll, I, I think that you'll find that at the end of the day, it's not going to, you're not going to feel exhausted or drained by those human relationships. You're going to feel uplifted by them and go, wow, I loved having 
those connections with people, even if you're pretty introverted. I definitely get drained. I definitely don't always, I don't really get energized by attending things. I get more energized by hosting them. I think that's like a new flavor of introversion that we're going to learn about and figure out in the next couple of years when you can control the situation. But I think bring a little bit of love and ensure that people's deep human needs are being met, even by something that seems very irrelevant, even if you're running a B2B SaaS conference, figure out what those deep human needs are and try and meet them. And you mentioned earlier that one person could infest a community with bad values. I'm curious to push against that. So if people are mimicking each other and you have a group of 99 good people, do you think that one person is already enough to tip that balance? Or where do you see that tipping point? I think it depends on how loud the person is, unfortunately. I've seen fairly large groups get maybe not like completely torn down, but definitely hurt by just one person or two people, which is why I think that the selection phase, the kind of admissions or the picking is really crucial. And that also goes back to something else that I think is a common mistake. It's very important, especially this is mostly in like professional communities, but don't just choose the people with the fanciest resumes. Make sure that you're really choosing the people who don't forget that value step just because the resume is extra fancy. Because I think that, yeah, I mean, maybe completely burn it down. Let's hope that one out of 100 wouldn't be able to do that. But I, I think it makes a bigger impact than it might seem if that person is like a, an active participant, because they start to make other people doubt the things that they like about the community. If, if that person says, wow, this is so transactional, other people who didn't think it was transactional until then, it puts that kind of seed in their head and they go, is it? Has everyone been treating this transactionally except for me? Have I been delusional? And that seed of doubt is really dangerous, I think. I, I, you want everyone to come in with their eyes wide open, but you don't want them to see things that aren't there. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And besides mimicry, are there any like counterintuitive discoveries that you have made concerning what works in motivating others to excel? Or is it mainly that for you? Yeah, I think this is still not really counterintuitive. I find that I, I'm very... I'm a very go with my gut person. And so there's not much that is counterintuitive other than uh, take the intuitive things and get much, much, much better at them. Do them to a much deeper degree than you think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so rather than counterintuitive, what I would say is this is like a classic mentorship one, but it's much harder to put in practice than to say it. Listen to what people actually want instead of what you think they want or what you think think they should want or what you want yourself. And I, I think that it's very important in any kind of mentorship or advice situation to remember that even if you're in, even if it's two people in the, the On Deck Founder Fellowship or starting startups or, or the Violet Founder Fellowship, and yeah, we both want to start startups. One person might want to build a bootstrapped company so that they can be financially free and they can have a flexible schedule. Another person wants to be the next Bezos and they're like going to break their back and have 20 hour days for 10 years so that they can get there. And that's like polar opposites of their purpose and going in and assuming that you know by what someone looks like or what they say on the surface is a recipe for that advice to go nowhere. And it will hurt the relationship. That person will, they might not even know what just happened, but they'll walk away feeling, why doesn't that seem like it works? And why does this person not seem to get me or understand me? You can't just like straight up say to someone, what do you want? That also doesn't always work. You have to listen to what they actually want versus what they're telling you because they think it sounds nice and they think it's what you want to hear. 
Right. That strikes me as something really hard to do because you also write as a mentor, want to nudge people sometimes in a certain direction just because you think they might not have the experience or they might not see things. Yeah, sure, from your view, but also from maybe a more informed view. In, in some cases, you want to set an impulse and maybe that will make a big difference in your mentee's point of view. But then I suppose if, if there's any kind of distinction you draw between when to nudge and when to really just listen and let the person let you know what they really do want. Where do you draw the line, I suppose? Yeah, I think one thing to look for is when they're talking themselves out of something that they would actually love. My favorite thing to ask, especially people who didn't have a typical path in the tech is, oh, do you want to start a startup? And a lot of times they're like taken aback by the question. They're like, who, me? Now? Never. No, I don't think that's me. And uh, I don't let them get away with that. I, I, Sure, there are people who don't want to start a startup. That's true. But most of the people who, if they have enough gumption to join voluntary networking groups or move to San Francisco, some part of them wants to maybe do this. And I think that talking to them and trying to suss out and poke into that and say, do you actually not want to? Or do you feel like you're not good enough? Do you feel like you don't have the confidence? Do you feel like you're unprepared? Do you think you have to be technical? Any of those things and like poking into them and digging in. I've done this many times, a couple of times, like really a person just did not want to start a startup. And I was like, that's cool. But 95% of the time they were talking themselves out of it because they thought it was too challenging. And they knew that it was challenging, but rewarding, but they just told themselves, I guess I'm just not good enough for those rewards. So I'm just not going to tell myself that I want to do it. And for those 5% that really don't want it, what tends to be like the reason against that or the personality that really does not want to start one, even though maybe having moved here to San Francisco or taken other actions that might make you doubt that they actually do not want to do it? I think what I've found is it's people who really value stability and harmony and who are not power hungry at all. I'll use my own mom as an example. My ideal living space would be downtown, right smack in the middle of things in the city. And her ideal living space would be in a cottage in the middle of the woods. She does not want to be like on stage talking to a thousand people with a spotlight on her. It's her nightmare. Like, I hate that. That's not what I'm going for in life. That's not what I want to get out of it. And so I absolutely respect that. And I think that's a, it's once I I figure out that's the reason. I know it's not a cop out. I know they're not talking themselves out of it. I know that's truly what they want. And I have read about you and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you have seem to have a rather unconventional background into tech. You used to be a dancer. I'd be super curious to hear about your story into the startup ecosystem. Also coming from a small town and all, doesn't seem like you were exposed to it uh, from early on, as I understand. Yeah, I so I was never a full-time dancer. It was always on the side, but I it would be very cool. It would be a cooler story if I was it was like from dance to tech, but it was always a side gig while I was doing things in in a like math or business or a comp sci. But it still was not a clean path. I didn't know anyone in tech growing up, I don't think. And even in college, because I went to a school that was disconnected from the tech industry, I felt like I was like clawing at something for years. I was sending all these like cold DMs, cold emails, reading articles. It was really not easy to get into the industry. I remember Austin Allred posted about this recently about Lambda School. And he said people 
think it's easier to break in to the startup inner circle than it is, but then they think it's, they underestimate like how easy everything is once you're in. But the breaking in is a lot harder than I think people who haven't tried it realize. I really did spend about five years trying to go to every tech networking event I could go to. I cold messaged a lot of like Teal Fellows, YC founders, tw- tech Twitter influencers. And that's the, the big thing that I, and I, I did a couple of different like a boot camp design boot camp. And I applied to tons of different startup jobs and got nothing or rejected from a ton of them. And I think that that now that I know how much volume, like the sheer quantity it took, like from quantity, I got quality from just trying a zillion times. My like cold messages became better. My conversations became more useful. And over time, I got the responses or the industry respect that I was looking for. But it took a lot of tries. And that's one of the things that I say most often to young people is take whatever amount of jobs you think you're going to apply to or internships and just multiply it by 10. And this, it reminds me of another thing that Elizabeth Yin from Hustle Fund posts on Twitter, where she said, when I talk to early stage founders and they say, I've already met 20 VCs and I, I still don't have a single dollar committed. She goes, talk to me when you've talked to 200. I think that people don't realize how much like brute force it's going to take to break into a world like the startup world. Yeah, it does take a lot more than one would initially think. But I wonder if also on the quality side of reaching out, uh, whether there is anything you wish that you would have known like 10 years ago uh, that you might, you know, do differently nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any regrets. <laughs> I like I like that I went through that brute force experience. I even appreciate that it wasn't very successful for a long time because I think it gave me much more realistic expectations. My very first Violet meeting, I put up posters on campus and made like social media accounts. And then I had, I think, eight RSVPs. And I go, cool, it's going to have eight people. That's not that bad. Eight RSVPs means nothing. There was one person and she walks into an empty room and sees me and goes, oh my God. And she like clearly wants to turn around. She's like, I thought there'd be more people here. I talked to her for five minutes and I was like, you can go. Okay. So I don't regret going through that brute force, but I, I think it probably could have been faster if I was a little more thoughtful. On the other hand, I couldn't have been more thoughtful because I didn't know what I wanted. I explored a lot of different industries and verticals and I, I was into ed tech. I was into UX design. I was into product. And I think that I appreciate that I can talk a little bit about a lot of things. It's very useful as a community leader to be like that, to be a dabbler. It's not always useful for every role. If you want to be a fantastic hardware engineer, you don't have to be a dabbler. Yeah. In your writings, I saw that you referenced Poppard's Mindstorms and Lockhart's Mathematician's Lament. Can you speak to what those, in my opinion, fantastic works that are criticizing the traditional math curriculum, what those mean to you? Maybe your own experience with the subject and how you would like to see their ideas of changing the curriculum take shape in the world? Yeah, absolutely. I love that you asked this question and found that because I think there's an interesting meta message to a lot of education research, which is just how do we get more people to not give up? This was also, there's a, a great book called A Mind for Numbers, which if you liked those two, you'll definitely like this this book. And it's basically applying Carol Dweck's mindset to math and science and saying anyone can learn math and science, even at very high levels and giving you a, a mental and psychological framework to approach them. I think that the thing that's really meaningful to me about Papert's work is his own story of not only innovating in math and computer science and artificial intelligence, 
science, but getting really fascinated about how we all learn math and computer science and actually digging into what does it mean to play, to create and to discover? And why do we allow children to do this and then dismiss it once people get not even it's not even like the reason I'm using this middle school turning point is because people stop letting kids play during class and like third grade. It's you don't even have to wait till adulthood. But I, I this kind of comes back to why I'm fascinated by startups because you can build a startup in almost any vertical to solve almost any problem. It's almost like startups are uh, the project-based learning of, of adulthood and of the rest of your life and career. You're not confined by solving a narrow specific thing in a certain way. You're instead expected, encouraged, and must play and discover new things. So I think that at a time, I thought that I would be an education researcher, but I think that instead what I really want to do is, is take these amazing ideas about what makes humans tick and how we can discover more than we thought and apply them to large groups of people and inspire large groups of people to, to really believe in themselves and to build their crazy world-changing ideas. And how do you think we, we can motivate more people? How do you spread the word to those that are not necessarily on the campuses in Berkeley or Palo Alto that are actually totally not exposed to this ecosystem? How do we reach them? I think I think we're totally I think we're already on the way there. This is something that is is this is one of the things that really motivates me to join the on deck team. We have grown so much in about a year and a half. I am really excited about what we can do in the next five. I think already things like the like YC and the Teal Fellowship and Paul Graham's essays along with YC that has spread the the gospel of startups and creating your own future instead of uh, just being a piece of someone else's to thousands and millions of more people than otherwise would have found out about it. And so I honestly, I feel like the answer is just keep doing what the startup space is doing and simultaneously fight against some of the forces that are doing the opposite. I One thing I do want to mention is I've been really involved in the diversity and inclusion in tech space for maybe seven, eight years. And I got really frustrated when at a certain time it became like a trend to write articles about how terrible it was for women in tech. And then I would have high school and college women come up to me and say, oh, is, is it okay? Are you okay? It's like, yeah, I'm okay. Like, I'm not just, I'm not crying every day. Like, sexism exists in our society, so it exists in this industry. But any kinds of things that are going to exclude more young people from believing in themselves and creating, I'm upset about. I'm like, you, as a journalist, you have to report the truth, but you don't have to dramatize the truth to a way that will really harm people. And even saying the word startups and lumping them all together, if one startup makes a mistake, that's not like a something that all startups must pay for. So I think it's important to both continue to spread the message and just the things that are spreading the anti-message. Yeah, I, I think that's so important actually to mention. It's it seems as the popular line, if it bleeds, it leads. It very much applies to to us scandals in the tech world as well, where it's like one bad thing might happen among a thousand good ones and trends that are as you say, applying to multiple industries and might touch one's life at one point are certainly not exclusive to tech. Maybe there is some overemphasis actually on, on those aspects that are then achieving the opposite of what the people spreading them are aiming for. I really appreciate that you're bringing that up. On a more present front, what idea or area or life experience are you most excited about right now? Yeah, I think that this is, it's, Not very surprising given everything that I've talked about, but obviously I'm super passionate about helping young people find purpose and meaning in their lives. I'm so really excited about launching uh, the new Catalyst program. 
So a, a little bit of context about on deck where I'm working right now, we have a, a network of these global fully remote fellowship programs. Most of them are about eight to 10 weeks and they have 100 to 200 people. And we bring in people to uh, fulfill some kind of goal or maybe they're all from a certain sector and they're building together. So for example, we'll have founder fellowship, one for early employees, for fintech and healthcare, things like that. And so this new Catalyst program that I'm leading is really for people who are new and recent grads, so about zero to three, four years out of school, community college, no college, all of those things are also very welcome, who are trying to figure out how can I not just follow the herd, but truly create an amazing career path that fits me. I think that it's a a total cop-out when we just accept that a job is going to be fine instead of that it's going to energize you and delight you. If you're going to spend 40 plus, maybe 50, 60 hours a week on this, I think it should be something you love. So what I'm excited to do is bring together about 150 to 200 super energized, ambitious, excited young people from around the world who want to build amazing companies, invest in amazing companies, and help create the future. That sounds fantastic. I'm really excited to see what comes out of that. And more generally, what kind of world do you think we will see in 10 to 20 years? What are kind of the trends that you see growing and what will the world look like in your vision? I'm really hoping for self-driving cars because I just drive enough to get a license and then no more. But to, to continue the thread of the community space, which I'm much more knowledgeable about than self-driving cars, although I can't wait for them. I, I My hope is that people will understand the value of open networks rather than closed networks. And that might seem contradictory to things where there's an admission process or selection. But I think that if there's enough chances to do things, if there's open applications to something and you can keep applying for 10 years that an application process isn't really a barrier. I'm hoping that the closed online networks that we've created, these walled gardens in social networks and echo chambers will give way to something a little bit more like the wild west of the internet that we saw in the 90s and early 2000s, but with a layer on top of it where extremely powerful, influential, and knowledgeable people are completely accessible to people who are just starting out, to young people who are trying to learn from them and figure things out. Yeah. And how How do you think we can accomplish that? I'm such a fan of that idea, having come from a very small town as well, and certainly seeing kind of the problems that these very closed bubbles impose. But how do you make someone very high status available to a total newcomer? I think a part of it is this is actually inspired by a product that OnDeck launched a, a couple years ago and will certainly bring back eventually, uh, but it just not in existence right now, but it was called Cosign. And the idea was people would have a limited number of quote unquote cosigns, so people who they endorsed, and that would help people parse through and figure out who are amazing up and coming people, who are amazing potential mentees? How can I seek out people to co-sign? And I think the, the way that feeds in is it's like right now, it's like celebrities who will do a contest where you have to enter the contest to meet them. That's not really the, that's not going to lead to anything. They're not, that's not going to be their mentee. What we really want is a way for people starting out to be more easily discovered, to navigate through systems, to rise to the top if they're really talented and they have a lot of grit so that the people who are already at the top can help them up, can discover them. It's like a Usher and Justin Bieber thing. We have all of these amazing open platforms. People can be discovered on their talent alone. And now I think we're just putting gas in that engine. I think we're increasing the efficiency. We're making it so that people really do have the tools to be like, shoot up to, wow, who is this? 
15-year-old AI researcher that none of us had heard of. Instead of it taking five years for the, the industry titans to find out about them, like what if it just happened in a day? What if it was really legible, really efficient, and those connections could happen instantly? So you're saying the OnDeck product will come back for the time being. Do you have any other programs that you would refer young people to that are going into the direction you just elaborated on? I have not been a part of the Teal Fellowship or Y Combinator networks myself, but I think that those are networks that I really respect of people who are extremely thoughtful and ambitious. And I think there's a ton of value in their alumni communities and the, the people that they're connected to. Similar to Teal, one that is a 17 fund started by ex-Teal fellow team members, which has an open Facebook group. And that is full of really just out there thinkers. I thought I was a big dreamer. And then I went to Silicon Valley and realized I was just a normal dreamer <laughs> because there's so many more like that and so many who go even farther beyond. And so those would be the ones I would recommend along with a extremely strong endorsement of on deck, of course. And I guess on the note of giving advice to young people, what kind of advice should we give young people that we aren't making explicit today? You can do much more than you think. And your life doesn't have to look like anything in particular. You can decide what it's going to look like. One thing that's very freeing about adulthood is just the sheer amount of freedom. You are finally in control of your time. I think that's really freeing and using that as an empowering thought instead of saying, oh God, now I suddenly have to wash dishes, feed myself, pay taxes. Instead to think, oh, I can actually choose. I can choose my job. I can choose my home. I can choose my life partner. I can choose my friends. Very, very freeing. I think like thinking about the, the freedom of adulthood instead of the burden will help shift your mindset towards every decision that you make on the way there. Yeah, I really like that. It's like being the entrepreneur of your own life in a sense. So do you think it's more important to know the written rules, the explicit rules or the unwritten implicit rules? And what is an unwritten rule that you discovered in your life? That's interesting. I think I, I maybe paint myself as a rebel, but I'm very much a rule person. So I think that you learn the written rules and then figure out which ones to throw out. The biggest unwritten rule I think that I believe would feed into what I just said Don't ask anyone for permission for things. Like, just do those things. I think a lot of people who've changed the world have not asked for permission constantly. Just start doing whatever you think. Someone yells at you and they say that's a bad idea. That email was annoying. You'll learn. You won't do it again. Learn by doing. <laughs> in another piece of writing, I saw that you referenced an article by Cal Newport, who writes a lot on Steve Martin, who in turn seems to have maintained a laser focus on a specific field for an extended period of time throughout his life, which made him really great at seemingly many things but then if you look under the hood he paid attention to those things for like five years on end and I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts related to that and FOMO which is I think very prevalent nowadays there is so much um, so many fellowships to apply to so many internships to get so many communities to join and it seems pretty overwhelming so how do you think about not maximizing optionality just for the sake of optionality yeah I think you can imagine since I'm at on deck that I'm pretty cynical about the things that people do that are for optionality, like optionality for optionality's sake, like working in consulting after graduating or going to business school. I think the lesson that I would take from so, so that's probably like the, the category of, of Cal's work where I felt for the longest time, wow, I respect so many of your ideas, but there's no way that I could laser focus on something like this to develop any kind of mastery. And I felt like I was like, am I just not decisive enough? Like what's going on? I read an interesting piece of education research that was for like gifted children. We can debate if that exists or not, but gifted children education research where they said, 
be very careful of specializing too early if you're a quote unquote gifted child. And it made me think of people who do like Intel science or who seem like they're prodigies. A lot of people who I thought were like crazy smart in high school or college are not doing much of anything interesting five years after. And my suspicion would be because they were following a lot of rules and expectations for them instead of their intuition. So the thing that I would say is I, I think you should explore a lot. Explore anything that you're even vaguely interested in, knowing that you should listen to your gut every time and eventually we'll figure out oh, this is the thing. I think some of us figure out this is the thing at 16. Some of us figure it out at 25. Some of us figure out at 40. But I think that if there's an approach of not, oh my God, I have FOMO because I wish I was in this thing. And instead, I'm going to try to be part of anything that I'm intrigued by. And then when I'm there, go in eyes wide open, listen to your gut and say, do I feel like I'm similar to these people? Do I want similar things in my life? Do I want to build similar things in the world? If the answer is yes, then you've probably come closer to your people, your community, or your professional path. If the answer is no, then that's great information. Now you don't have to keep wasting time with that. And you also don't have to feel FOMO if uh, someone gets a, an amazing selective award in that space. You're like, cool, that's amazing for you. I think that FOMO is rooted in not feeling happy for other people when we don't feel happy about ourselves. And if you trust yourself and you know that every time you're, you're re rejected from something, that's it's okay. A lot of things you can try again, some things you can't, so then you didn't get it for a reason. I, I was rejected from, uh, from four Ivy League schools I really wanted to go to. I did the whole like crying, very upset, how dare they. And I'm very cool with it now. I can say that without thinking like, oh, I, I want to go back in time and change it. Other interesting avenues probably open up when a door closes as well. But I'm, I'm curious to dig deeper there too. I guess when you're in that situation, are you trying something new out? And what would you say is a time horizon? You don't want to stop when it gets hard the first time either, right? Uh, just because there's a challenge or you're doing a lame thing now, but maybe that's just what it takes to get to something more interesting. How do you think about persistence in that situation versus recognizing, okay, this really isn't for me? Yeah, I think I'll pick on the difference in words. It, I didn't say stop when it gets hard. I said stop right. if you realize that those aren't your people. If those are your people then you got to work harder. If those are your people and you still have something like tugging inside of you that makes you want to give up, then it's time to double down and put in the work. So I think that when you want to quit something, you have to practice being very honest with yourself about why you're quitting. I like the, the ex there's a lot of examples of when this happened, but one of the ones that was most frequent was I, I studied computer science in undergrad and it got hard many times for many reasons. One of which was just, I wasn't doing enough homework because I was really into clubs, as you can imagine as a community person. But I've forced myself to not give up that major because I told myself, I do want to understand how technology works. I don't want to just consume it. I do want to come to be proud of myself that I did a, a challenging, like mathematically intensive major and didn't just give up and do something easier. I, I do want to learn these things. Like I, I love, I do love math. I just wasn't putting in the time. I wasn't putting in the hours of the focus. And so I think it's very crucial. It's like the, the a running theme, self-awareness, very deep self-awareness and frequent self-awareness is really crucial for not giving up for the wrong reasons. Yeah. So I guess to, to conclude, what don't I know that I don't know? What important questions have I not asked you today? Does anything come to mind? 
Ooh, no, I think you asked fantastic questions. I feel like if anything, I am repeating the same couple of themes, but I think that happens when there's some kinds of fundamental truths that I'm really trying to convey. Exactly, I, exactly I, where we're trying to, trying to make the implicit explicit. <laughs> so thank you so much for talking. I found it really fascinating. We're linked to your writings as well as the OnDeck program that you're launching. Shreya, thanks so much for talking today. Thank you so much. This was awesome.